Out of the Past had Mitchum playing Jeff Markham, a private eye who's mixed up with a good girl, a bad girl played by Jane Greer, and a hood played by young Kirk Douglas, whose hold on Jeff repeatedly comes out of his past to haunt him. Jeff has to run dirty errands for Douglas's character, Wit, but runs one too many and is entangled with the evil Kathy, played by Greer. Past had the noir tangle of plots, the feeling of darkness, the inevitability of fate. This is those wonderful people out there in the dark. I'm David Jansen. Episode 43, Robert Mitchum. I can see him coming out of a run-down building into a rain-swept, darkened street. He's wearing a fedora pulled down over his forehead with a large, rumpled trench coat to match. He moves wearily, a big man, not plodding, but not stepping lively either. If he speaks, it's laconic, with a somewhat slow pace to the words seldom rising above a conversational tone. Not much bothers him. Oh, the occasional clue that's out of place. The occasional fom who means to do him wrong. Sometimes he has to dodge bullets or fists. Once in a great while, he takes a crack on the head. But he keeps going. He smokes incessantly, striking the match and the flame illuminating his face with its hangdog look and sad eyes. It lights him up. It's Robert Mitchum. He's the king cat of film noir, the star of innumerable war films, some highlighting heroic officers, some as just a simple grunt who wants to go home. He's a Western hero or anti-hero. He's a malevolent villain who has love and hate tattooed on his knuckles. He threatens a family in which he thinks the lawyer father has done him wrong. He walks with hoods in Boston, the Yakuza in Japan. And he does all of this, not with the method, not with histrionics, not with knock-your-eyes-out good looks. He does it with stillness, with acting by not appearing to act, by being Robert Mitchum. He broke all the rules. He didn't give a damn. An unlikelier Hollywood star there never was. Mitchum had a wandering and often displaced childhood. He was born in 1917 in Bridgeport, Connecticut, but he didn't stay long. His father, James, a rail worker, was crushed to death in a work accident when Robert was two. His mother, Anne, moved to South Carolina, then back to Connecticut and remarried. Robert was sent to live with his grandparents in Delaware at an early age. Uninterested in school, except as a place to act up and prank others, he was moved to his sister's house in Philly, then to Hell's Kitchen in New York. At 14, he was hopping freight trains and traveling the country. He was with the Civilian Conservation Corps for a while, then arrested for vagrancy in Georgia, put on a chain gang, and escaped, finally reuniting with his family in Delaware. He was all of 16, the same year he met the woman he would marry, 
Dorothy Spence, and I mean Mary, they'd be together until his death. His sister Julie was an aspiring actress and moved to California with the rest of the Mitchum family soon following. Robert worked backstage and in bit parts in community theater with Julie. He married Dorothy, had their first children, and went to work in assembly at Lockheed as World War II began. He had problems with stress on the job, if you can imagine Mitchum stressed, and offhandedly turned to film for work, initially landing extra and bit parts. He was uncredited in the film The Human Comedy with Mickey Rooney and Frank Morgan, playing a G.I., foreshadowing, out on the town with his buddies Barry Nelson and Don DeFore, then in Gung Ho with Randolph Scott, based on the Marine Raider Battalion. RKO signed him to a seven-year deal and then wasted him, sticking him in a bunch of so-so Zane Gray stories. He was fortunately loaned to United Artists for the film The Story of G.I. Joe, which while Bill Wellman directed, Burgess Meredith played real-life correspondent Ernie Pyle, and Mitchum was Captain Bill Walker. The story shows Walker allowing Pyle to shadow his sea company as they fight through North Africa and up the Italian peninsula. The film was unusual for the 40s in its clear-eyed view of the war and became a hit with four Oscar nominations, including the only Academy Award nomination in his career for one Robert Mitchum. One Academy nomination. Ever. Near the end of the war, Mitchum was drafted as a U.S. Army medic, but he was well on his way in film. After the war, he stepped into a genre that had no label, but would become known to fit the troubled and unsettled years after World War II as film noir. He wore it like a rumpled trench coat. He was in a few throwaways, like Undercurrent, The Locket, and Pursued. He had a major role in one of the early hallmarks of the genre, Crossfire, opposite two other Roberts, Ryan and Young, and a femme fatale for the ages, Gloria Graham. Crossfire was an unblinking look at soldiers accommodating to civilian life, as well as, unusual subject for the time, anti-Semitism. Mitchum was his usual solid, not stolid self, a counterpoint of quiet yet strong sensibility to Ryan's twisted anti-Semitic killer. Playing Sergeant Peter Keeley, Mitchum helps drive forward the investigation of a murder of which one of his men is accused. Crossfire was nominated for five Academy Awards for the cast and a Best Picture nomination for what had been envisioned as a B-film. He moved to one of his most iconic and unforgettable roles in a noir that is, for me and for many, one of the best of the type. Out of the past had Mitchum playing Jeff Markham, a private eye who's mixed up with a good girl, a bad girl played by Jane Greer, and a hood played by young Kirk Douglas, whose hold on Jeff repeatedly comes out of his past to haunt him. Jeff has to run dirty errands for Douglas's character, Wit, but runs one too many and is entangled with the evil Kathy, played by Greer. Past had the noir tangle of plots, the feeling of darkness, the inevitability of fate, all summing up the nihilistic vibe of the post-war era. Mitchum is quiet, brooding, and aware he's repeatedly twisting away from the scheme gone wrong. When Greer gives out with the line, I don't want to die, Mitchum answers it with an even, neither do I, baby, but if I have to, I'm going to die last. Perfect. Film noir in a nutshell. It was magnificent and a high point for Mitchum. 
Mitchum would personally experience the inevitability of fate soon after. He was arrested at a Hollywood party, along with starlet Lila Leeds, for smoking marijuana. Bundled into the L.A. County Jail for a week, he was later found guilty and served six weeks at a prison farm doing odd jobs. It killed Leeds' career, but Mitchum escaped without a scratch, his conviction being overturned due to a finding of police entrapment. Talk about fate! If anything, the bust enhanced Mitchum's reputation. He was increasingly known as someone who went his own way in the Hollywood system, with a low regard for the vocation of acting. He was inscrutable, unruffled, and simply played Robert Mitchum, no matter the situation or script. He didn't give a damn. More noir followed, with Mitchum playing with Greer again in the heist film The Big Steel, directed by young Don Siegel this time as an army lieutenant trying to get back a stolen $300,000 payroll. It was then paired with Howard Hughes' protege, Faith Demure, portraying an unbalanced patient to Mitchum's doctor in Where Danger Lives. He worked as the crusading police chief in the remake of The Racket, again with Robert Ryan and with Elizabeth Scott playing the femme fatale. Opposite Jane Russell and von Sternberg's Macau, as well as coming up against another unhinged femme fatale, in Angel Face with Gene Simmons, directed by Otto Preminger. Quite a string of minor noir hits. He was incredibly well served by the one directorial turn of actor Charles Lawton, the incredible role of Harry Powell in The Night of the Hunter. Powell, with love and hate tattooed on his knuckles, is a twisted, so-called preacher. Powell victimizes women, murders them, and absconds with their money. When he happens into a situation with Shelley Winters, he discovers that her children are hiding a stolen fortune left by their bank robber father. The journey of the children, aided by silent star Lillian Gish, and the audience's witness of the force of evil that Powell deploys in pursuit of the children and the treasure, is the stuff of nightmares. Mitchum is fabulous in his first role as a villain. There's no other word for it. He plays the tortuous reasoning and malevolence of Powell perfectly. You can imagine him thinking about his time on the chain gang and riding the rails to supply the evil that lurks all times below the surface of Powell. Hunter has influenced the style of directors like Scorsese, Fastbinder, and Altman, and was selected as the second greatest film of all time in 2008 by the French film magazine Gagiers du Cinéma. Mitchum would return to noir on and off in the next decade and then much later in his career. He formed a production company with his wife, DRM, which brought out four films for United. He was teamed in a well-received set of films with Deborah Carr, starting with Heaven Knows Mr. Allison, directed by inimitable rapscallion John Huston. Mitchum played a Marine corporal marooned on an island in World War II, the only other inhabitant, Carr's sister Angela, an Irish nun. They struggle with a mutual attraction and the invasion of the island by the Japanese. The film was popular, and Carr received an Academy nomination, as did the writing. Mitchum was cool and excellent as the destroyer captain versus U-boat commander Kurt Jurgens in the tense war film The Enemy Below. A complete change of pace as a driver running moonshine in DRM's feature Thunder Road. His son James played a role, and Mitchum even sings in the film. Then returning to play with Carr in The Sundowners, directed by Fred Zinneman as an Australian family raising sheep. The film received Oscar nods for five categories, including Best Film 
and direction. In 1962, Mitchum veered back to Noir, way back, in the chilling and tight Cape Fear, stealing the picture from lead Gregory Peck in a portrayal of an evil and loathsome rapist, Max Cady. Mitchum's performance as the menacing and seemingly unstoppable Cady is riveting and revolting. He's low and uneducated, but his hate inspires him to become a genius of seeing ahead and dodging every legal, and some not so legal, hurdle that Peck puts in his way to stop the threat to his family. The scene in which he attacks Polly Bergen, playing Peck's wife, was so visceral and all-consuming that the crew had to separate them after director J. Lee Thompson had called cut. Fear was hard for the audience of the early 60s to take, but is now viewed as a classic of noir, so much so that Scorsese remade the film in 1991, with Robert De Niro as the Katie character and using Mitchum in a bit part as a cop and Peck as Katie's lawyer. De Niro was excellent and twisted in the remake, but Mitchum's Katie is unforgettable. Mitchum finished out the 60s in Howard Hawks's El Dorado with John Wayne and James Caan, Hawks trying to recreate the magic and chemistry of his Rio Bravo triumph. Then in the World War II film Anzio, with a huge cast including Robert Ryan, Arthur Kennedy, and Peter Falk. As the 70s dawned, Mitchum was late middle-aged and entering a period in which he took even more chances in roles than before. He attempted Ryan's Daughter, a David Lean extravaganza set in rural Ireland, with Mitchum cast against type as a mild-mannered schoolteacher who Sarah Miles falls for, seeking love and excitement. Instead, she has an affair with a wounded British officer and must face the wrath of the Irish nationalist village. The film was only partially successful, though nominated for four Academy Awards. He then hit his stride in the decade with The Friends of Eddie Coyle, a dark Boston noir in which Mitchum's Eddie, a small-time crook, has no friends at all. He's a gunrunner who's sold out in the worst way by his crime partners, including a double-dealing Peter Boyle. The film is unrelentingly dark and constrictive, with, as in so much of noir, no heroes and no dodging fate. Onward to the wonderful Sidney Pollock's direction of The Yakuza, with a screenplay by writing geniuses Paul Schrader and Robert Town. Mitchum plays a retired detective, who returns to Japan to assist an old friend in finding his daughter, kidnapped by the Japanese gangsters of the Yakuza. Mitchum's Harry Kilmer is caught up in the straighted ways of Japan and the Yakuza syndicate, somehow emerging with his life and honor intact at the end of the film. The Yakuza was little understood on release, but is now something of a cult film. Mitchum then undertook two of his more interesting later films. Like many of his best, they were noir through and through. Mitchum played his age as a weary but ever-forward-plotting Philip Marlowe in two remakes. The first, originally made in 1944, as the awful Murder, My Sweet, in which Marlowe was played by Dick Powell. Yuck. This iteration returned to Chandler's original title, Farewell, My Lovely. Mitchum is an aging Marlowe in 1940s L.A., avidly following Joe DiMaggio's hitting streak, and trying to unravel what he thinks is a single strand, but it's really a set of cases tied in knots. It has a wonderful cast of Charlotte Rampling, John Ireland, a blast from the noir past, Sylvia Miles, and Harry Dean Stanton, who is just great in anything he ever made. 
Lovely was the first Chandler novel I ever read, and Mitchum is my imagined Marlowe come to life. He moves a bit slower than Bogart, and certainly slower than neo-noir iterations like James Garner and Elliot Gould. But he's philosophical, doesn't expect too much from his work, and only wants to do his duty and a good job. He embodies Chandler's view of Marlowe as someone who walks down mean streets, but isn't changed by those streets. Lovely was released to good reviews, especially the casting of Mitchum, and pleased backer and magnate Sir Lou Grade enough that he signed up to finance a reprise. The follow-up was from perhaps Chandler's best-known novel, and a remake of a classic Bogart as Marlowe piece, The Big Sleep, set in England in the then-present day of the 1970s. Mitchum is again Marlowe, and paired with Candy Clark, Sarah Miles, Joan Collins, and Oliver Reed. And playing General Sternwood in a small role, an aging gent named Jimmy Stewart. The scene between Mitchum and Stewart is fun as they fence with one another. As in the original film with Bogart, the plot is so convoluted that even Chandler admitted he didn't know who committed one of the many murders. But it's a nice romp, and Mitchum is tired, rumpled, and successfully playing himself throughout. A nice period piece. Mitchum later closed out the decade by appearing in another star-studded war film, Midway, lost amid a group including Charlton Heston, Henry Fonda, James Coburn, Tashira Mifuni, and Cliff Robertson. Mitchum's film work slowed in the decades after, his high points more in TV miniseries, such as The Winds of War, War and Remembrance, and North and South. He was quietly but wonderfully funny in a favorite Bill Murray holiday movie of mine, Scrooged. His final film role was in Jim Jarmusch's psychedelic western Dead Man, with Johnny Depp in the lead. Mitchum died in 1997, at age 80, of cancer and emphysema, still married to Dorothy. Just the span and number of Mitchum's films and his striding across different genres would mark him as an important actor, from the golden age of Hollywood all the way through to the loss of the studio system and rise of the independence. I don't think it much mattered to him. He kept his own counsel. I saw him repeatedly in the 70s and 80s on TV talk shows, supposedly discussing his latest release, but behind his smoke-tinted glasses, never giving much away. He'd puff on cigarettes. The host would try to cajole him to talk about his latest or something, anything about film. Sometimes he'd answer. Other times, he'd give a curt reply and force the host to turn to other guests. He didn't give a damn. Look, Mitchum wasn't a stiff. It's not that he couldn't act. In fact, he was a talented performer. If the ability to act is, in part, genetic or a predisposition, he had it coming and going. His sister Julie was the first actor in the family, 
leading the Mitchum clan out to California, she to appear in House and Haunted Hill, great, the Ten Commandments, the High and the Mighty, and as a singer in nightclubs. His brother John Mitchum was a writer, composer, and actor, a particular favorite of Clint Eastwood, appearing in Paint Your Wagon, Dirty Harry, Magnum Force, The Enforcer, High Plains Drifter, and the outlaw Josie Wales. He was also in Stalag 17, In a Lonely Place, and a variety of TV appearances. And it continued in Mitchum's family with Dorothy. His son James was not only in Thunder Road, but also In Harm's Way, Tulane Blacktop, and Dennis Hopper's The Last Movie. Son Christopher was with John Wayne in Chisholm, Rio Lobo, and Big Jake, as well as The Last Hard Men and Tombstone. Mitchum himself was a talented singer, doing his own singing in films such as River of No Return, The Night of the Hunter, and The Sundowners. He recorded two albums, one a Calypso-themed effort, and later, a country album. So, no lack of talent in this family. No, Mitchum looked on acting as a job. You showed up. You knew your lines. You hit your mark. You delivered the lines. Then, you went home. Longtime director Robert Wise noted that Mitchum would often annotate his script with the acronym NAR, No Action Required. He used silence or the smallest of looks to indicate his thoughts. For those who waxed lyrical about the craft of acting, who went on and on about the intricacies of getting into and realizing a character, method actors, let's say, he had a rejoinder that he'd given to Barry Norman of the BBC during an interview. Look, I have two kinds of acting, one on a horse and one off a horse. That's it. His photographic memory made it easy for him to remember and deliver lines, and his laconic delivery made his work economical. It's what he did when not speaking. His look of boredom, of languor, of anger, of surprise was all the more impactful since it was delivered infrequently than when needed. Otherwise, N-A-R. Here, I've done a survey of Mitchum's work over decades with some of my personal favorites. I don't do justice to the sheer volume and wide range of his career. Great in dramas, superb in war films, notable in westerns. But his forte was noir. The Robert Mitchum hangdog air, the quiet voice, the use of action on short notice, but then put away in a flash. His sad eyes, lined face, and resigned demeanor made him seem all the more the perfect noir character, trying to move onward, trying to hit between tackle and end, onward towards his goal, only to be defeated or done in by a woman, or turned up by a friend. Noir during Mitchum's tenure wasn't known as such. It's just that when a film with a guy trying to fight his fate, to get ahead, but the brakes go up against him, was written in the 40s and 50s, he was more often than not the actor the producers called. He put his characteristic look and laconic imprint on the genre. Roger Ebert summed it well. Robert Mitchum was my favorite movie star because he represented, for me, the impenetrable mystery of the movies. With his deep voice and his long face and those famous weary eyes, Mitchum was the soul of film noir. One Academy nomination. But Mitchum was a favorite of his directors. 
Wellman thought Mitchum should have won the Oscar for the story of G.I. Joe. Houston felt he was the equal of Brando and Olivier. Lean said it best when he noted, He's a master of stillness. Other actors act. Mitchum just is. AFI has honored Mitchum as the 23rd greatest male star of classic Hollywood film. His villains of Katie and Powell were so powerful that their book ended at 28th and 29th on AFI's 100 Years, 100 Heroes and Villains. Mitchum was nominated for a Golden Globe for Thunder Road. He received a BAFTA nomination for his work in Heaven Knows Mr. Allison. He is a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and received the Golden Globe's Cecil B. DeMille Award for outstanding contributions to the world of entertainment. For me, he conjures up noir. He's the king cat. I can see him sitting in Mexico, waiting for Jane Greer to come walking out of the sunshine in her white dress. Or his look of surprise when Greer's Kathy shoots his old partner, the underplayed understanding that he's been had. Nothing crazy, just a look. I can see him as the young Jeff and out of the past, or the aged Philip Marlowe, rooting for DiMaggio, while he tries to figure out what happened to Moose Molloy's little Velma in Farewell, My Lovely, before Moose gets plugged in the gut. He keeps soldiering on, in his trench coat and his hat pulled down. He's always great, just playing himself. He didn't give a damn. You can find us on the web and social media. We're at those wonderful people on Instagram, and at Films in the Dark on Twitter. Our website is thosewonderfulpeople.com, where we post pod episode transcripts, and you can leave your questions and comments. Our music is by Martin Shellikins, Alex Zavesa, and Alex Chernick. I'm David Jansen. Talk with you soon. And as always, I'll leave the last word to Mr. Scorsese. What are the essentials to you? What makes cinema? I think what makes cinema to me, uh, I think ultimately it's something that for some reason stays with you uh, so that a few years later you could watch it again or 10 years later you watch it again and it's different. In other words, there's more to learn Mm -hmm. about yourself or about life. Mm -hmm.